Hi, everyone. Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table, a healthcare podcast focused on career development, burnout prevention, and non-clinical careers. My name's Mike Asbeck, and I'm joined, as always, by John McDonald. Good morning, John. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Does anybody ever call you Mikey? Uh, my kids sometimes when they're trying to get under my skin. No. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but an old nurse assistant here at work used to call me Mikey, and it was like her term of endearment to me. And I just had to, you know, grit my teeth every time she said it. So you never squashed it. I never squashed it because she was so lovely. So today, John, we've got a really interesting topic and I'm excited to talk about this with you today. We're going to actually do something a little bit different compared to previous episodes. We're going to spend the entire um, episode just talking about an article that recently came out in the New England Journal of Medicine. And when this came out, I think both of us got really excited because a it's a really thought-provoking article that deserves a lot of discussion, but it also is in line with what we've been talking about with burnout, with the need to evolve medical education from a, both a didactic and clinical perspective. So it really touches on so many themes that we've, we've discussed many times over. So I'd love to introduce this and then we can maybe start going through it. And the way that I foresee us doing this is we can maybe introduce it, maybe even read the intro here. Um, and then we can maybe go, you know, portion by portion and then just figure out what aspects we want to debate or discuss. Yeah, I think uh, even reading that first little paragraph. So the article is in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was just published recently and it is do- by Dr. Lisa Lisa Rosenbaum. And the title of the article is Being Well While Doing Well, Distinguishing Necessary from Unnecessary Discomfort in Training. And I'm going to go through the first couple paragraphs here just to give our listeners an intro and and make sure that they're understanding our conversation here. During his internal medicine clerkship, Dr. A, now an intern, dove into tasks medical students often undertake. Getting outside records, faxing forms, updating patients' primary care physicians. But he sensed that some of his peers disapproved of his willingness to engage in such scut work. Believing that these weren't educational tasks, fellow students suggested that by leaning into them instead of setting boundaries, he was reinforcing problematic norms. Dr. A saw the work as integral to both his education and patient care, but he found it difficult to challenge their perceptions. If you disagree with someone who's trying to set such boundaries, he explained, you're seen as being part of toxic culture and not supporting people in their wellness. Several educators around the United States told me stories revealing a similar dynamic, Once routine aspects of education or training are now deemed potentially harmful. A department chair noted that encroachments on time away from the hospital, whether for reading at home or staying after a shift to deal with evolving illnesses, were often deemed threats to mental health. A vice dean of education told me that students concerned about peer-to-peer comparisons had protested the existence of the Alpha Omega Society. Educators described being admonished for giving medical students or trainees negative feedback and being told to include only positive comments in the written record. Summarizing this shift, one recent chief resident observed, it's almost become cool to view being a doctor or medical training and the demands that come with it as a huge slight and unfair. Tension between once acceptable workplace demands and well-being is hardly unique to medicine. 
This tension seems particularly salient in fields that are theoretically committed to a broader social cause. Analyzing how perceived harm among employees is crippling progressive organizations, Maurice Mitchell, formerly of Black Lives Matter and now director of the Working Families Party, notes that leaders of social justice organizations are finding their jobs untenable as workers consistently describe workspaces as toxic or problematic. For medicine, an enterprise currently balancing a crisis in well-being with the requisite rigors of training and evolving workplace demands, perhaps the biggest and most relevant expectation, Mitchell debunks, is the belief that one's mental, physical, and spiritual health is the responsibility of the organization or collective space. Mitchell writes that discomfort is part of the human condition and a prerequisite for learning. Violence and oppression are to be avoided, but not discomfort. The ability to discern the difference is a form of emotional maturity we should encourage. Because the ability to make such distinctions is also critical for trainees, medicine faces a bind. Our educational systems have clear shortcomings, but maintaining our commitment to excellence while remedying our failures requires distinguishing unnecessary harms from necessary discomforts. So why has it become so hard to make these distinctions? And I'll pause there. That is such a great intro and a lot of bomb throwing maybe would be the right word within that. So let me just pause there and I'd love to kick it to you to get your initial thoughts. My first thought is we talked a lot about burnout. Um, We did a three-part series on burnout and wellness among physicians. And not I don't want to say that this uh, is in opposition to what that article or what those podcasts were about, but I think it's it's balancing the scales. Um, I had recently, um, I, it's perfectly fine for me to say I'm here because my employer knows as well, but um, I recently interviewed for a position that um, would be working with students primarily. And the conversation kept coming up that there's the new type of student. And I think that this article speaks to it. Um, following COVID, we know that there's been a lot of mental health focus among physicians, providers, clinicians. Um, But there is the thought, excuse me, there's the thought that we might be swinging too far to one side now. And I, when we first talked about this, Mike, you said, I think we're going to fall on different sides of this, but I'm not sure that we are because um, balancing quality and excellence with care um is just that uh, it's even the even my place of work it's something one of our principles is high standards and uh, care you have to balance it too because without one you're only going to get people burned out and without the other um it, your quality and patient care abilities are just going to suffer yeah, it's, it's such a hard thing. And I think this is where I, I do actually have sympathy for both sides. So I probably am someone, no shock to anyone listening, that is going to fall more on the side of being less sympathetic to this and feeling like it, there needs to be a, a high resiliency to go through something difficult. And medical training is difficult for a reason. There's There's a lot that needs to go into it. And there's a level of expertise that's required that is just, it has to be there. You know, we can't have surgeons coming out that are eh or so-so because the margin of for error in neurosurgery is going to be so thin. But the flip side to that is 
I do think that there is aspects of medical training that have fallen into the trap of, well, that's the way it's always done. And I think in the past, we've talked about the Flexner model. The Flexner model is basically the model of physician education that has been in existence for over 100 years now, using med school and then clinical residency, things like that. But at the same time, we've seen this forever expansion of medical school and residency training, where residencies are becoming longer, fellowships, and then post-fellowships, and you're just adding more and more years to training. And that makes sense in the in the realm that our healthcare system is becoming more complex and subspecialized. So there does need to be these incredible subspecialties that have these very, very long levels of training. But at the same time, there's probably a lot to physician training that is there not because it's leading to positive outcomes, but just because that's the way we've historically done it. And I think the best argument for that is the expansion and thriving of PAs and NPs, is we have a consolidated educational pathway. We have an immediate entry into the workforce in lieu of residency. And by stud, you know, the empirical evidence out there, PAs and NPs generally can fill the role of a physician by about 80%. Now, the key with that is that 20% that a PA or an NP can't do is the high acuity, high risk stuff where you need that high, high level of expertise. The, it is, it's an imbalanced scale because the stuff that a physician can do that a PA or an NP can't do is the stuff that is really, really critically important and they have to get right. But at the same time, if a PA and NP with a, a much more consolidated training regimen can do 80% of the work, that probably is a really good argument that there is stuff in residency training that is not there to drive outcomes or make you know the, the physician the best physician they can be, but rather maybe there as an unnecessary discomfort. Now, maybe part of this discussion is what, what truly is moral injury or as predatory workplace practices versus just discomfort, because I think that's maybe another aspect that I didn't touch on, but I'll pause and give it back to you and see your thoughts. Well, one of my notes I was making when reading this, I'm going to read it verbatim, um, part of the article mentioning maintaining our commitment to excellence while remedying our failures requires distinguishing unnecessary harms from necessary discomforts. Um, what I first thought of when I read that was my first year in graduate school. I We had these study rooms and I was really committed to doing well. I mean, that's why we paid as much as we did in school because we really want to do well in our work. So I was staying at school until two or three in the morning every day in those study rooms, uh, studying my proverbial butt off. Like it was insane. Now I had to adjust because it wasn't tenable for me. I think that's where um, this hit harder for me is nobody told me that I had to adjust for my mental health. They, uh, they really didn't, the mental health really wasn't the top of a conversation when I was in school. I recognized that I was getting burned out. I didn't know the terminology at that point, but I remember sitting at my, uh, um, my table with my P and T, my, uh, P and T books out. And like hair was falling in my book and I was so stressed out that like my hair was falling out. I said, you know, I, I got to see if I can do this a different way. Can I get the same grades by, you know, changing up how I study or maybe 
not studying every night like this, maybe a few days. I worked it out. And the second year in school, I maintained the same grades and I was not studying as much or as long. So nobody told me I had to fix that. I just recognized uh, this is untenable. Nobody even told me I had to stay up late to do that. I just thought that's what I had to do. So it's, I'm glad that we're talking about this a lot more, but there are necessary discomforts that we all have to go through. And I think that's not even in work. That's how we grow in life. We have to go through discomforts to grow. I think that's right. And there is a balance because I remember when I was first entering PA school, it was right around the time where the residency hour restrictions were enacted. And there was so much hand-wringing at the time. I remember being on clinical rotations and preceptors, attendings, complaining about lazy residents. And these residents were going to be poor physicians. And I think if I'm remembering the residency hour restriction, it cut it back to 80 hours a week or something. So they're still working an insane amount of hours. But if you look at the research, the outcomes have actually not changed at all. So cutting residents hours and capping their hours for safety purposes did not negatively affect physician training. So it was one of those things where I think the dogma was the resident needs to live at the hospital. They need to be working 120 hours a week because that's the only way you can become competent in medicine. And how do we know that? Well, that's the way that I was trained. And yet at the same time, when that was altered by policy, there was lots of hand-wringing. There was lots of uh, hyperbole about how the sky was going to fall. And yet the training actually did not suffer. There's actually, I think, a couple studies out there that show that patient outcomes may have improved because resident errors due to fatigue may have gone down. So I, I'm I'm always worried that we we the one of the most dangerous things we can do is just be okay with the status quo because that's the way it's always been done. And so much of this ends up falling there. But the flip side to that is we also do need to make sure that exposure to hard things is part of the training. I'm a big believer in the 10,000 hours theory. So if anyone is unfamiliar with Malcolm Gladwell, he, in one of his books, I forget which one, um, talks about how to become an expert in something. Ideally, you need 10,000 hours of exposure and that if you have 10,000 hours of practicing piano or practicing ice hockey, whatever it may be, you're going to become an expert. And ironically, physician training ends up being pretty darn close to 10,000 hours. So it is interesting how well that lines up. But if you want to be a surgeon, you can go to the sim lab, you can do, you can read textbooks, you can do everything and anything to expose yourself didactically to all these potential things that may happen in surgery. But ultimately, the best way that you're going to learn is to just expose yourself by doing. And that's really what residency training is, is long hours with the idea being that you are going to maximize your training time to expose yourself to every possible scenario that may occur. And as we cut back hours or as we establish boundaries and say, well, we don't actually need to do this. We need, you know, nine to five or whatever it may be. There probably is a tipping point where you will start impacting um, outcomes in terms of competency. So where that tipping point is, is the hard thing, though, because I think it's really, really difficult to know where that is until we've already crossed over it. So can I pivot, please? All right, so I'm going to read a, an expert, an excerpt from the article. Um, now, the article was set up in a way where we were discussing, there were some doctors who talked about their experiences in medical school or the residency training, 
And then it goes also on to talk about the conversation behind this question uh, among colleagues, among students. Uh, so reading verbatim, experiencing daily racism, for instance, is different from being asked by your patients if you're old enough to be a doctor. Having to admit a new patient right before end of shift is not a moral injury. And burnout is not the same as depression. The substantial proportion of medical students and trainees who have debilitating mental illnesses need adequate care, but we cannot help them, much less address our structural, our structural inadequacies if differentiating between serious illness and the inevitable challenges of training is treated as a moral breach. So um, some of the other conversations in the article was there are times when people talk about this moral injury or trauma that they're experiencing. And if you do not support them, you're the black sheep. You um, are the outcaster. You seem to be siding with the victimizer. So in the age where there is that concern of maybe students being more perceptive or uh, some would say soft or some would say uh, focusing on self-care, how do we address this when our colleagues bring it up? How do we address it when students bring it up? Because you're right, Mike, we have to balance it in some way, but we don't want quality to suffer for the sake of just care. Right. Yeah. It, and I think we talked about this in our episode with my student, Mora, uh, with regards to the social media role in depression and stigma of depression. And Part of the argument or conversation we had is while more conversation about mental health on TikTok or social media, maybe that does reduce stigma. But at the same time, if we are appropriating these mental health terms such as depression or OCD or ADHD to conditions that don't meet that criteria, what we may in fact do is hurt people's ability to go get help because someone who is suffering from clinical depression that is debilitating to the point that they can't even get out of bed or can't even self-care may look at TikTok and say, well, all these other people say that they're depressed and yet they're living full, amazing lives. So why can't I? And I, I think that's what ties in here is if everything becomes a trauma in our trauma obsessed world, then people that have serious struggle or significant struggle, whether it be mental health or racism, things like that, that can get lost in the shuffle. The The importance of addressing these legitimate structural issues gets harder and harder when they're watered down to some degree by other people's complaints of things that are maybe just discomforts. So here's, a, here's another quote that I want to give in here that I thought was really good. Given our historical insensitivity to trainees' personal struggles, some observers would argue that unquestioning deference to pain and vulnerability is a small price to pay for offering better support. Yet, as the list of threats to well-being lengthens, this logic's essential flaw becomes harder to ignore. Trainees may be vulnerable, but so are our patients, many of whom are not in a position to advocate for themselves. The centrality of patient care to our educational mission may seem obvious, yet the mounting pressure to project sensitivity to trainee well-being has made it difficult to consider the consequences of unwavering dedication to their comfort. Indeed, emphasizing how critical it is for trainees to become comfortable with being uncomfortable, Dr. C wondered, if we keep going down this rabbit hole, how can we become good doctors? 
So I want to break that down a little bit because I think it's really interesting. So the first part, given our historical insensitivity to trainees' personal struggles, struggles, we would argue that unquestioning deference to pain and vulnerability is a small price to pay. Yes, I think that's right in the sense that historically we have done a lot of things in terms of residency training or even just medical culture towards training that is toxic or predatory. And we've seen that. The fact that we cut back residency working hours significantly over 10 years ago and we didn't see a change in outcomes reinforces that. The fact that we now have PAs and NPs that are able to fill similar roles as physicians for lower acuity work reinforces that in my mind. And I do agree with the second part here, that as the list of threats to well-being lengthens, the logic becomes harder and harder to justify. We can start, everyone can agree that racism in medicine is bad, right? No one's going to disagree with that, hopefully. And we need to continue to fight against that, against discrimination, against racism. But then when it becomes, you know, how dare you ask me to read a journal article after hours? Or how dare you ask me to stay late because a patient is decompensating? That's where we get into this dicey territory where staying late on a shift because a patient isn't doing well is an inherent part of medicine. And we've talked about it in our burnout episodes. That certainly may contribute to burnout because this is a career that often asks a lot of you. You know, in COVID, we saw this. We saw people that had mandated double, triple shifts because there was no one else coming and yet people were dying. So this is a career where that is inevitable. So it gets really dicey if we reach a point where we say, nope, sorry, I'm I'm not staying. I don't care if this person dies or if this person is decompensating. But here's the other part of that that I think is where it gets interesting is I do think that the residents or the people that argue that boundaries are necessary, they make a good argument there because I think so often the hospital will short staff. The hospital will have personnel staffing shortages that are of their own making. And then they expect employees to pick up the slack. And from my perspective as a PA or an NP, if I was asked to stay late, not because there was a patient dying or because one of my patients was decompensating, but because they just, they didn't, you know, fill the schedule correctly. As a PA, not as a resident, I would probably tell them to pound sand. But as a resident, the power dynamic is completely different. You don't necessarily get to say that. As a resident, if you say, nope, sorry, I've got plans tonight, just as this article shows, everybody clutches their pearls and says, oh my goodness, this person is ungrateful. They don't don't appreciate how difficult medicine is. So once again, I'm actually sympathetic to both sides because I think residency training or medicine is hard. And you are going through an incredible level of discomfort to be a master at your craft. But the flip side is, I think that there is a long history of training maybe being predatory and some level of boundaries and having some level of work-life balance is appropriate. Um, the attrition rates for schools is not 0%. Um, success rate is not 100%. And people are going to fail out. Uh, some folks either not built for it, did not study appropriately, didn't have, have the mental acuity to do such, maybe they not the fortitude, but it, 
not everybody who goes into a profession is going to be successful. And I think it lends to this conversation. Uh, there was a point in the article where they said, who's responsible for this? Um, do we put it on the organization to make sure that somebody is mentally well, or is it on the self? Um, and so often, because my question originally was, how do we even have that conversation with our colleagues and students? Um, because it is a balance. I think that if there is moral injustice, a lot of the, a lot of the times when it's brought to light, it would become an HR issue and it would be settled in, in an appropriate way of how we've always settled these things. Um, but there was a good point that she made about playing the game where whether we like it or not, there are some things in medicine that are too far down the line to change and you may need to play the game a little bit. Um, there was a point in this in this article where they mentioned when I asked Dr. A what motivated him to do work his classmates considered beneath them, he said these tasks both unambiguously advanced patient care and helped him understand dysfunctions of a system he hoped to improve. Uh, when I think about an excellent student or an excellent resident, it's somebody who can perceive what needs are coming and take care of them at that point. That's a really hard thing to teach somebody. Uh, but what I found most notable are those students who continue to push, 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 and they're always looking for ways to um, help the pharmacist out or the clinician out, making their job easier. Because more than not, that's what I usually see, Mike, is somebody will understand the dysfunction in a system whether it's software, workflow, um, patient issues, what, whatever it is, it's because they're doing the menial work. They understand the policy and procedure. They understand the job guides that the organization put in place. And they see the gaps that way where somebody who thinks that they're above that and just want to be in meetings all day and hopefully they can talk to management at this time, they're not necessarily getting the nitty gritty of base of the system. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that not everybody is also going to be successful. So we can't lower the bar to make sure that 100% of the people that get in succeed. That's impossible. Yeah, I we've actually implemented something similar here with our recent hires. So we hired a new PA last year and we're trying something different. It's not a, a residency, it's not a fellowship, but it's almost like a quasi internship onboarding. And the reason we did this is we recognized that for PAs and NPs especially, because they're not training in a residency, they are doing a very condensed educational model. And then when they come out, they do need a little bit more mentorship, support to get up the ground because the learning curve is going to be steeper. So what we did is for the first six months, we hired her and then we had her work as a support member through all the different departments and so she worked within the nursing department and did phone triage and med refills. She worked as a tech and did, you know, patient care activities. She worked up front, did, did prior auths, sent faxes, things like that. And our intention was to have this new hire before she got credentialed with insurances, before she started working as a PA, work through all the different departments that we had in an effort to just give her a sense of how things work 
to give her a sense for um, how it looks from the staff side. And my goodness, I think it has made her an incredible provider because she actually understands the operational workflow. She understands what staff needs. She understands the things that providers do that are um, difficult for staff to handle, you know, if we're making requests that are unreasonable. So it's made her a more well-rounded provider. And I think a lot of times in training, scut work does have that role. Now there's a balance, right? If your attending is, <laughs> is asking the resident to go get them coffee every day, there's clearly no educational value to that. But having a, a first-year intern doing you know, vital signs on patients every hour within the ICU, can that be done by an MA? Yeah. Is it an opportunity for that intern to interact with the patient or the patient's family to take vitals, but then also look at recent lab work and do a more thorough assessment? Right. There's so much more value and education that can happen. It's not just them taking vital signs. It's rather more opportunity for absorption, for interaction with the patient, more opportunity to learn. And I think so often what ends up happening is that this new generation of, of students looks at activities that they believe are beneath them or they believe are perceived to have no value. And these activities do have value, but they just may not understand because they're in the trenches. They, they're not on the, uh, the mountaintop looking down. They don't understand where the value is. And that's my worry. I, I will stand side by side with people that want to eliminate aspects of training that are there just to, to haze or just there because, well, I went through this and it was difficult, so you must go through it and have it be difficult too. That's silly. And thankfully, on the military side, because you know that's where I'm familiar, I think the military has done a good job getting rid of that, of recognizing that these like hazing experiences or these, we're going to make you suffer just for the sake of suffering, um, that they've done a fairly good job eliminating that. But at the same time, Navy SEAL training is still not easy. Navy SEAL training still involves a ton of adversity, a ton of psychological and emotional distress that's intentionally there to build you up and make you stronger. And I think medicine is very similar to that. So I don't know where the balance is. And I love that we're having this conversation because these types of conversations is what lead to hopefully finding that path where there's a good balance. Uh, but there is extremes on both ends. Um, when I have students... Uh, I, so when you first mentioned uh, this article, you said, I think we're going to fall in different yeah. lines of this. And I said, I, I really don't know, because theoretically, when we talk about these things, um, I I like the exercise of talking about mental health and wellness. Um, it's near and dear to my heart. However, in practice, when I have residents or students, I do have a very different take in how I act um, on rotations with these folks. For instance, if I recognize a student or resident who is working their butt off, they know the material, they know how to perceive what's needed, um, and they just have a great concept of uh, the topics. If it's slower or if I don't need them, I'm probably going to send them home early sometimes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very much more lax. But if I find somebody who is either A, not trying hard or always trying to get out of stuff, I will be especially hard on them because it's not it's not because I think I was able to do it. You should be able to do it. It's more of knocking people into their place and realizing that we're here for patients, not for your own well-being. 
Um, and one of the points that they made here is at what point do exhortations to minimize our own discomforts compromise development of the skills necessary for tending to other suffering? I think that was a very powerful statement that they made. Um, so it is, I believe, part of the clinician's responsibility to recognize what students, residents um, who need more remediation, you may need to be more difficult or maybe may harder on them than the folks who are grasping it because it's not our job. It's not my job to make sure that my students understand critical care to a great extent. It's my job to stay in my field. So I'm not going to keep somebody 80 hours to say, you need to learn about acid base when I haven't done acid base in 10 years. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, in, when I teach students, I, I'm far more focused on big concepts and critical thinking for that exact reason. What I teach them specifically, if I, if I tell them the dosing range of sertraline, they're not going to necessarily remember that unless they're going into psychiatry. And if they go into psychiatry, it's going to get reinforced over and over again. I'm far more interested in teaching them how to interact with patients and teaching them how to empathetically connect with their patients and teaching them how to think critically through a problem, how to determine what the next steps are. How to work with your colleagues best, how to have a good work ethic. And I agree with you. A lot of those things aren't necessarily things that require 80 hours. I just had a situation this week. One of my students sat, unfortunately, is going through a personal thing. And she had to leave last week abruptly and then was telling me, well, I'll, I'll be in tomorrow. I said, no, no, no. Take, take the rest of today. Take tomorrow. And if you're feeling ready to come back, then come back Friday. This week, again, she, she had to leave early for a personal issue. And then was trying to tell me how she was going to rush back here and make sure that she still caught the last hour of clinic. I said, That's silly. And like you said earlier, this is a student that works hard. So I don't have concerns that the student is shirking work. The student is having an issue go on because we have stuff that happens in our personal life and, and we need the space to deal with that. So the idea of making that student rush back here for an hour of clinic just seems so silly. And that's the part of this, I think, the toxicity of training that we can continue to to try and address. Making that student come back to the clinic for one hour is not going to further their educational competence. It's not going to do anything other than stress them out and, and be a power move, you know, as a preceptor of you need to prioritize your clinical training hours by being here, even when you've got this horrible personal thing going on. So I think those are the little things. Now, if she missed two weeks for a personal thing, that's fine in the sense that we all have stuff come up, but then she would need to make those hours up. But if she's going to miss a day here or a day there because she has something going on, I'm going to try my best as a preceptor to support her and also be as understanding as possible and not uh, use that as an opportunity to, to add to her stress. So I think those are the areas where we can evolve. But here's what I'd like to do to maybe wrap up this topic before we go to personal items is I want to give you the floor and then maybe I'll take it to just give a concluding thought on this. Yeah, my concluding thought is uh, we don't have the answers and medicine is far from figuring this out. It's just becoming to be a huge topic of conversation. My charge for you listening is be sensitive to your response to students, to colleagues, to your work. And try your best to get into your own body. And that's very, that's very trauma 
uh, informed speak, um, but really listen to yourself and to your colleagues and try and focus our thoughts not on what did I do in school or how can I show everybody else that I'm better than everybody or I've tried harder or maybe I was victimized when I least deserved it and understand that we went into this to focus on our patients and to be the best that we can. And sometimes that requires discomfort and it's not always moral injury because at the end of the day, we decided to go into these positions and we can leave at any point. Uh, we are not slaves to this job. We, we do live in America where we can transition pretty easily to other positions. Now, I, I say that with a grain of salt because I do know people listening here may have had a hard time finding a position. But again, we chose to go in these positions and we can choose to leave. Um, my focus is if you are passionate and you are happy, it's because you're taking care of yourself and you love the work that you're doing. And if that's not the position you're in, then it's time to take inventory. I think from my end, what I would say is if you are a student and you feel that your training is abusive or excessive, I think there's certainly situations where programs are toxic. So I never want to minimize that because I've heard of experiences I've seen or even interacted with programs where it is just downright toxic. It's an unhealthy environment. But if you're in a program and you feel that the the work hours are excessive or that it's difficult, my encouragement would be to try your best to get through it, knowing that this too shall pass, that these training programs are of limited time. And as we said earlier, playing the game is sometimes what's needed is I don't think as a student, the power dynamics there allow you to enact tons of change. So if you're a student and we're talking about where the boundaries of training should be between pursuit of excellence versus uh, discomfort or things that may become predatory or abusive, my default would be to try and just grind it out with the caveat that that's not always the possible case because sometimes there are truly toxic situations. Now, if you are not a student, if you're on the other end of it, if you have graduated, then I would encourage you to really take a critical look at training. If you're a faculty member or even if you're a student that went through it and you had really strong opinions about things that you felt were just unhealthy or did not contribute to um, advancing the competence of you yourself as a student, that's when I feel you can make change. If you feel that this needs to evolve, if you feel that this needs to get better, then use your role, use your influence, use your voice as a practicing attending physician, as a PA, as an NP, as a pharmacist to enter a training program as faculty, as a preceptor, and really start working hard to make reform. Because a lot of these times, these programs that do need to change, the students don't have a voice. The students may complain, but it doesn't necessarily make a huge difference. When you're on the other end of it, that's where I think you really can make change. So uh, my recommendations are different for uh, different phases because I do think as a student, it's hard if you are going to you know, refuse to come in on a Saturday and your residency director then <laughs> says you have to. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. And I think complaining about it doesn't necessarily lead to a ton of great outcomes. But remember, 
those things that when you become an attending, instead of passing along to the residents abusive patterns and doing the whole, you know, well, this is what happened to me when I was a trainee, so it's going to happen to you, use your position to try and make meaningful change. So with that, why don't we switch over to some personal items, John? This was a, a good conversation, but maybe a little bit heavy. So this is a great opportunity to maybe lighten it with some personal stuff. Personal items. Yeah, let's uh, let's talk. Man, I've had quite a, the last couple of weeks uh, preparing for this interview I was talking about. And it was it was a lot of fun. It was tiring. Um, all in all, it ended up being, I think, a 13-hour day. But... It was wonderful. So we talked a lot about this topic in that conversation. So that's why it was so much fun. So I think uh, my personal item is a quasi work item, but often mine end up being that way. So I am going to Miami a few weeks from now and I'm flying down there for a meeting. And usually for consulting work, a lot of times what will happen is they'll fly us down Friday. We'll have like a reception dinner and then the meeting will be Saturday. Everyone flies home Saturday. So I'm flying down to Miami Friday and my goal, because my wife and kids are in school and work on Fridays, so I I was going to try and get out as early as possible and try and maximize my exposure to warm weather in Miami on Friday afternoon. So I had these grand plans. I was looking at all these fun outdoorsy things that I could do down there because anytime I'm in a different city, my, my default option is to find something outdoors and active. So I started with the plan of wanting to go snorkeling in Biscayne Bay. And then I realized that I couldn't do that. I just didn't have enough time. It's a little bit far away from Miami. So then I downgraded to, well, maybe I'll go mountain biking because there's shockingly actually a really good mountain bike park in Miami. Now you know. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be really cool. And then I realized that logistically that was going to be maybe a little bit challenging. So I've defaulted down to maybe just finding a cigar shop and finding a good Cuban coffee in a cigar and sitting outside, which will still be a wonderful afternoon. And I'm sure it'll be sunny. And I think it's in the 80s down there in March. So it'll be great. But I'm chuckling because I started with these grand plans of doing this very healthy, fit, active activities and have just devolved into I'm going to sit on my butt and do something as a healthcare provider that I know I shouldn't do that is, you know, carcinogenic but I'm going to enjoy it while I do it. So I'm still going to get some self-care in, but maybe not the self-care that I preach to everyone else in terms of uh, being active. Yeah. No, that really sounds awesome. And with the nice weather, sitting outside with a coffee, I'll stand a book. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I'll end up doing is I'll I'll find a, a nice little Cuban coffee shop. I'll get a, a Cuban espresso, which is espresso with like brown sugar mixed in until it's almost like a syrup. That and a good hand-rolled cigar with a book and then find somewhere where I can sit in the sunshine for a couple hours. It'll be really nice. Have you ever had Turkish coffee? I love Turkish coffee. So it's amazing. Yep. Um, okay. Personal item. I've thought about it. So uh, I am focused more and more on when I'm with my children, when I'm at home, trying to be at home. So I've spent a lot of time with the kids, a lot more time playing Fortnite than I would have imagined. Um, but they they set up an ambush for me the other day and they, I got home from work and they just started shooting me with Nerf guns. And sometimes I get really into like, I just, whatever they're doing, I'm like, I'm going to be the best at whatever's happening. So I loaded this, this Nerf up with one of those round drum cases and 
I annihilated them and they, I got them stuck in our bathroom and they barricaded themselves in. And I was sitting outside under like a blanket, like a sniper from Enemy at the Gates, waiting for them to come out. And they came out and I started pumping them in there. They closed the door. And for a while, like a half hour, they weren't coming out. And I was just sitting there. I just wanted to, I, that's how committed I was. And all of a sudden, I hear some giggling in the front door. And my wife says, what in the world? They had jumped out my window in my bathroom, ran around the house to get behind me. And I couldn't even be upset. Fantastic. That's impressive. Tactical movement. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And what I'm really interested in after this discussion is I'm really hoping that on our social media platforms, on LinkedIn, on Instagram or Facebook, that we're going to have some really good discussion on this topic, because I think there's a lot of stuff that can really go in both directions on this, even as we saw in our conversation today. For those of you that are unfamiliar, follow us on any of the major streaming platforms. If you like what you hear, even consider giving us a review. If you don't like what you hear, definitely don't review us. Until next week, this is Mike and John. Everyone have a wonderful week. Love you.